Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and a few weeks ago, there was a strange sight taking place in the streets of Paris. A group of firefighters unfurled a massive French tricolore flag across the Arc de Triomphe, while men and women dressed in ancient military uniforms and old-fashioned dresses walked down the city streets in parade formation. Like something out of a dream, the procession began at the Porte d'Italie, the city's southern entrance in the 13th arrondissement, and then slowly made its way north towards the Hôtel de Ville, and eventually towards the Hôtel Meurice, singing La Marseillaise along the way. The French are not nearly as prone to historical pantomime as Americans, with our Renaissance fairs and Civil War reenactments and so on. But this was no ordinary role play. August 25th marked the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Paris, maybe the most triumphant moment in the history of 20th century France. It had been a long war, and for Parisians, a unique one. They'd experienced a sort of twilight war. For four years, the streets of Paris filled with German soldiers. The French government decamped to the countryside and washed its hands of the capital, and Parisians were faced with an incomprehensible landscape. What was right? What was wrong? The world had turned upside down, and moral clarity was hard to find. But there's another aspect of the occupation of Paris which is usually overlooked. Most Parisians experiencing this upside-down existence were women. With almost all French men away fighting with the free French, working in factories, or locked up in prisoner-of-war camps, most of the era's choices, compromises, and acts of charity, cowardice, and bravery were taken by women. Women occupied a totally separate sphere of society in pre-war France, which left them especially vulnerable during the occupation, but which also offered them unique opportunities. Bereft of legal rights, financial resources, and military status, Parisian women had to get creative to help themselves and their children survive. Some women chose to collaborate. Some women chose to resist. And most women weren't sure where one ended and another began. Most of this feminine experience was covered up after the war. Oftentimes, women's actions were hidden away to protect the bruised masculinity of French men still stinging from their defeat by the Germans. Other times, women's actions were hidden away by the women themselves out of shame or a simple horror at what they'd been forced to do. The dreadful narrative that seems to emerge from the end of the war was, men resisted, women collaborated. It's misogynistic tripe, and it does a tremendous disservice to the women whose stories have been intentionally or unintentionally buried over the past 75 years. Even for a history obsessive like myself, there are so many stories I'd never heard, many of which have only come to light in the past few years. So, in the weeks to come, I'll be sharing these stories with you. I've gathered together a number of women whose experiences represent a wide spectrum of wartime behavior. The good, the bad, the heroic, the cowardly, and the desperate. Each episode will focus on a particular woman's experience of the occupation. 
Taken together, I hope this series will provide a greater appreciation for the importance of and the variety of women's actions during the war. World War II was a total war, and distinctions between combatant and civilian existed only on paper. Women, and often children, were arrested, imprisoned, tortured, tempted, bribed, given positions of power over the weak, left to the mercy of the strong, sent to the front lines, sent behind enemy lines, and sent to their deaths. Sometimes they were villains. Just as often, they were heroes. This week, I'll begin my series on women in war by recounting the moment when everything fell apart. The fall of Paris. Girls of France, girls of France, we're mighty proud of you. When shadows fell and all was dark, you led your sons like Joan of Arc. We know our brothers will never feel blue. They'll find us On May 29, 1940, 16-year-old Elizabeth Kaufman couldn't take it anymore. It was a beautiful day in Paris, and here she was cooped up in a library. To Elizabeth, the charms of Paris were still new and fresh. For half of her life, Elizabeth and her Jewish family had been on the run from one European capital to another, staying one step ahead of political and religious violence. First, they'd relocated from Elizabeth's native Vienna to Berlin, where Elizabeth's father, a journalist, could document the economic crisis of the Weimar Republic. Then, in 1933, Adolf Hitler took power in Germany and promptly blacklisted Elizabeth's father, both for criticizing Hitler's putsch and also for being Jewish, forcing the Kaufmann family back to Vienna. But home was no longer a safe haven. Austria was falling under Hitler's spell, and before long, Elizabeth's father headed out for Paris. It took years for Elizabeth, her mother, and her brother to join him, as the Third Reich had closed the border to Jews. The Kaufmans were trapped, until Elizabeth's mother managed to trade her jewelry for French visas. In November 1938, the Kaufman family settled in Paris, and at last they felt safe from Hitler's reach. But the peace didn't last long. A sleeping Paris, prepared for everything, her guns close by, breathed softly in the darkness. So wrote the novelist Irene Nemirovsky during the so-called phony war of the spring of 1940. Though the Germans and the French were nominally at war following Germany's invasion of Poland, there wasn't really any evidence of this fact to the average Parisian, who figured that whatever the Germans chose to do, they would be sheltered by the strength of the Maginot Line. The Maginot Line, those guns close by, 
represented 20 years of French defensive strategy, the totality of its war preparation, and a complete and utter failure of imagination. Generals always fight the last war. It's an old chestnut and a profound warning. In the 1920s, a France still reeling from World War I determined that the mistakes of the Great War could never happen again. The French Minister of War, André Maginot, built up the most advanced line of fortification the world had ever seen, able to withstand anything the Great War could have thrown at it. Aerial bombings, tanks, chemical warfare, and supply line disruptions. By the end of the 1930s, the Maginot Line was an incredibly dense network of forts and defensive structures, some small and strategic, some huge and intimidating. As one newspaper announced confidently in April 1940, the Maginot Line is the most effective barrier against the attacker. It will fulfill its function for as long as may be necessary until the day that the progress of the war shall dictate for us the form of words imposing final defeat on the enemy. Wherever French territory touched German lands, the Maginot Line was impenetrable. Until, that is, you reached Belgium. Since Germany was the main target, the French-Belgian section of the Maginot Line just sort of tapered off, half-heartedly scattered around. Some modern-day scholars think the Maginot Line was never really intended to stop a German invasion at all. It was only meant to push the Germans into invading Belgium first, which would presumably buy France enough time to get its affairs in order. Depending on which version you believe, the Maginot Line was either France's greatest military failure or its most profound moral failure. Whatever the case may be, for most native Parisians, it was enough to help them sleep soundly at night, even as the German army moved its way from Poland into Belgium. But Elizabeth and her family weren't native Parisians, and the war was hardly phony. Immediately after France declared war against Germany on September 1, 1939, France began rounding up German nationals into internment camps, including Elizabeth's father and brother. Now, like so many of their neighbors, the women of the Kaufman family were left to their own devices. Paris was becoming a city of women. Whether they were the 18,000 men rounded up into enemy alien camps, or the 2.5 million men called away to the munitions factories, or the famous doomed Maginot line, the men of Paris were gone. On the day Elizabeth grabbed her bicycle, she rode through a city of women, children, and the elderly. The broad avenues with their beautiful parks and homes give me a special delight, and since the traffic here is not so heavy, I can look at the lovely homes, the well-cared-for palaces, and observe the faces and dress of the passers-by. At the Place de la Concorde, I decide whether I want to ride through the busy Rue de Rivoli, where businesses since the war have suffered heavily because the luxury items meant for rich foreigners, the English, Swedes, and Americans, no longer are there to be sold. Other stores must close, pour cause de la mobilisation. The Jardin de Tuileries reflects the usual wartime conditions. The lawns, usually so well kept, look like a meadow, and the stalks of grass are long and dried out. Instead of the tulips that usually are magnificent, 
there is earth waiting to be turned. Elizabeth was supposed to be studying for her end-of-year exams on the day of her bicycle ride, but perhaps it's for the best that she seized the opportunity. She wouldn't be able to ride her bicycle through Paris much longer, and anyway, those exams would never happen. Only a few days after this carefree joyride, the news would begin trickling into Paris. News that wasn't reported by the official radio broadcasts, news that wasn't shared by the French military, news that no one wanted to believe. At the beginning of that month, most Parisians would have shared the view of the Canadian general Leo Lafleche. You cannot imagine such fortifications. We were greatly impressed. Men or tanks could never cross that barrier of steel, rows and rows of steel rail protruding from the ground in series and unending rows, like powerful teeth that tear the heart out of an engine. Jungles of barbed wire. The men are comfortable, warm, well-provisioned. Nothing like the old days. Indeed, World War II would be nothing like the old days. For one thing, the Germans had airplanes. On May 10, 1940, the Germans had invaded, not France, but Belgium. Within 24 hours, they'd bombed 83 of Belgium's 179 airplanes. The morning of Elizabeth's bicycle ride, Paris woke up to the shocking news of a Belgian surrender. It had only been two weeks. Elizabeth notes, there are newspaper articles that this is the greatest betrayal in memory. But this isn't enough to shake the city's confidence. I don't really believe that there are so many Allied troops in Belgium that the damage will be all that great. This can all be overcome. It is unthinkable that the Germans will win in the long run. But the Germans had figured out the obvious solution to the Maginot Line. If you can't beat them, go around them. For 20 years, France did everything it could to prevent Germany from rolling across the eastern border. Instead, the Germans simply went over it. Only a few weeks after crossing into Belgium, the German army crossed the northern border into France. With the French government keeping a tight rein on the news, Parisians were kept in the dark about the particulars, and they scrambled to piece together updates from the BBC and, most importantly, the German propaganda radio channel Radio Stuttgart. Now the capital began to worry if maybe the city was underprepared. Oh, the metro stations had been turned into half-hearted air raid shelters, and the grassy, untended Tuileries gardens that Elizabeth had bicycled past were about to be turned into a victory vegetable garden of sorts. But otherwise, the city was totally unready for serious conflict. French overconfidence in the magical Maginot Line meant Paris was fortified with nothing more than two battalions of Senegalese soldiers, the city police, the riot police, and a handful of tanks. Every day, the German army rolled south towards the capital, and panic was growing. Again and again, the French government refused to give accurate reports to the public, fearing a panic. Rumors spread like wildfire around the city, and Radio Stuttgart, realizing that the Parisians were listening, began broadcasting fake news to confuse the enemy. To calm everybody down, someone in the French military had the bright idea of holding a mass at Notre Dame, calling on the nation's most beloved saints for help. 
If you can believe it, seeing your country's military leaders praying on their knees for heavenly intervention and salvation did not inspire confidence. The air was filling with smoke, pouring out of government chimneys as civil servants used sensitive paperwork to stoke fireplaces burning in the late summer heat. On the edge of the city, just ahead of the Germans, the first refugees from Belgium began trickling in, grief-stricken and shocked. As one Canadian journalist, Gladys Arnold, witnessed, first came the chauffeur-driven, but within days all kinds of vehicles were moving across Paris. Soon they were arriving on foot. Their stories were horrifying. Our minds were not equipped for the tales they poured out, in spite of what we were seeing and hearing with our eyes and ears. Nevertheless, the presence of these initial Belgian refugees conveyed a truth which no amount of radio propaganda could overcome. As Gladys wrote down, The human river stretched across the road. What will remain forever in my memory was the slow, uneven shuffling and the awful silence. Of course, Elizabeth and her mother recognized the plight of the Belgian refugees completely. They'd been in the same position themselves, twice in the past six years. Elizabeth's mother began making arrangements to get her daughter out of the city, but scheme after scheme fell through. Finally, on June 3rd, Elizabeth's afternoon was pierced with the sirens of an air raid. Heading down into the shelter with her neighbors, she listened to planes dropping bombs overhead. Located far from the action, the first German assault on Paris itself felt unreal. Elizabeth was lucky. Standing just outside Notre Dame Cathedral, Gladys Arnold, the Canadian journalist, remembers watching two straight rows of little girls, accompanied by their nuns, crossing in front of the cathedral. It would have looked like a scene out of Madeline, except that the nuns were running, driving the girls into the cathedral, calling out to Gladys to run, run, faster, faster. Peering through stained glass, the shadows of hundreds of German planes passed overhead towards the Bois de Boulogne and the factories nearby. One young boy living near the Bois de Boulogne crawled up to the rooftop of his air raid shelter and saw German Stukas swooping down towards me with an ear-splitting roar which gripped my guts and made me shake so much I had to lie flat down on my belly with my hands over my ears. Within one hour, 200 planes dropped 1,000 bombs, decimating the Renault and Citroën factories killing 234 adults and 20 children. The rest of the German army hadn't yet arrived, and the planes were only an advanced guard, a preview. The war now becomes personal, Elizabeth wrote that night. Unbeknownst to them, Parisians were experiencing their last week of freedom. Even after the fall of Poland, even after the fall of Belgium, even after the raid on western Paris itself, the city was simply in denial. It is acknowledged indifferently that the Germans are barely a hundred kilometers from Paris, Elizabeth wrote a few days after the raid. For several days now, cannon fire could be heard, yet people have become used to it, even though the air during the day is shattered by the resounding noise. The days are warm and lovely, the evenings are long and clear. I often sit at the window in the dark to enjoy the night air. They are fighting, even at night. 
At the time of this entry, the British army was trapped on the beaches of Dunkirk, retreating across the channel. The next day, June 9, 1940, reality set in. The French government knew time was running out. Without warning the city residents, the French government secretly began evacuating Paris along a pre-planned flight route to the city of Tours. They weren't the only ones leaving town that day. Just as in Belgium, the well-to-do were first out the door. While the rich called on their chauffeurs, Elizabeth considered her own more limited options. It would be impossible for me to find work in a resort town, especially given the attitude towards foreigners and with so many French people who would be available to do the kind of work I would do. How would I live? Evacuation is for those with plenty of money or for those who own property. Working-class Parisians had another ace up their sleeve. Most families were only one generation removed from the countryside. Having migrated to the city in the glamorous 1920s in search of work, they now migrated back to the country in search of safety. Yet even those with country cousins faced the same questions as Elizabeth. What would they do for money? How would they live? And most importantly, how would they get there? It is little wonder that even as late as June 9th, then, so many Parisians adopted the same attitude as Elizabeth. I am not afraid of the bombings. That may only be because I lack imagination. I cannot imagine that something would fall on my head. Paris is probably well defended. The Germans are not yet in the city, and there is no panic. But the next morning... Elizabeth and the rest of Paris woke up to find out that during the night, the French government had moved out and the Germans had rolled in. After weeks of reassuring statements and radio broadcasts and newspaper articles to the contrary, the French government was on the run, the Germans were in the streets, and the Parisians? The Parisians were on their own. All the world is leaving Paris. So wrote Elizabeth on June 10, 1940, 24 hours after writing that the city was far from panicking. The Germans are said to be in Saint-Germain. The newspapers have stopped. My bag is packed. Not all the Parisians are leaving. What are Mother and I going to do? All over the city, women conferred with one another about what to do, where to go, what to bring, and what on earth were they going to do about the children. It was boiling hot outside. Should they wear summer clothing to avoid heat stroke on the road? But how long would they be gone? Should they wear everything they could just in case? Should they wear valuable furs that they could trade for food? Would they be faster in a car? Or would they be stuck in traffic clogged with refugees? What if a friend with a car had only one seat available? Should they give the seat to their child to help them get to safety faster? But what if it was a stranger with a seat? What dangers would they face on the road? What dangers would they face by staying? From the city of Tours, whichever government officials had arrived safely declared Paris an open city. No resistance would be offered to the German army in the hopes that they would enter the city peacefully. It was a devil's bargain, giving up any hope of victory in the hopes that the Germans would leave the city and her inhabitants more or less alone. As the news raced around the city, Parisians knew it was now or never. Tomorrow, we shall leave Paris on foot, Elizabeth wrote. Our intermediate destination will be Dad, whose internment camp was a hundred kilometers from Paris. 
After visiting the camp, Elizabeth and her mother plan to continue on to a family they knew in the countryside. They are 700 kilometers away. The idea is fantastic, 700 kilometers on foot. If we walk the average 30 kilometers a day, it will be an uninterrupted march that will take 23 days. This afternoon, I still took time to hurry through the Latin Quarter. Although excited, I tried to fix everything in my mind, the houses, the plazas, and I asked myself, for how long? Forever? Or will it be for only a short time? In every home, in every street, in every arrondissement, the three million remaining Parisians, mostly women and children, made plans to escape. In 1939, French women weren't just unable to vote, they were unable to open a bank account in their own name. Before the war, housewives received a regular allowance from their husbands, and most women lacked a checkbook of their own. For the working-class women scrambling to save themselves and their children, money became an impossible quest. The only women able to get their hands on money were those who had eschewed the banks and saved up their allowance in coffee cans and mattresses. In an age-old story, women around Paris scrambled to find their one liquid asset, jewelry. Engagement rings, family heirlooms, everything was smuggled away or even swallowed in the hopes that it could be bartered later to keep the family alive. Even if women could prove that their husbands were fighting at the front, it didn't matter. The banks were closed. So were the grocery stores and the bakeries, surrounded by empty streets and a chilling silence. Families who could no longer care for their pets let them run wild, or they euthanized them. All over the city, French families began gathering up their belongings, strapping the mattress down on the car roof, whether to sleep on during the long journey or to protect them from bullets and bombs from above. All of a sudden, in a massive spasm, Paris emptied itself into the streets. While Elizabeth and her mother tied on their walking shoes, other women squeezed themselves onto the last trains leaving the city, holding their babies over their heads, standing up the entire journey south. There weren't nearly enough bathrooms on board, so whenever the trains paused to refuel, women had themselves lifted out of the car windows for a bathroom break, hoping desperately that they'd be able to get pulled back through the window before the train pulled out again. The trains weren't even going anywhere in particular. They'd pulled out of the station without a listed departure, stuffed to the gills with Parisians who didn't care, just so long as it was going away. The refugees carried a bewildering assortment of provisions, unsure what would be useful or valuable on the road. Women stuffed valuable paperwork in their bras. Children ambled along carrying precious family treasures in their backpacks. Old women were carried along in carts, or even carried piggyback. As the women and children poured into the streets, they choked on the acrid air filled with smoke. The last of the French government's paperwork was still going up the chimney, and now the French army was burning its oil reserves outside the city to prevent them from falling into German hands. Elizabeth and her mother stepped into the streets and joined the biggest land migration in memory. Once on the road, they joined refugees fleeing from smaller towns and villages and those whose cities had already fallen. In total, one in five French people hit the road in what would eventually become known as the Exodus. The Canadian journalist, 
Gladys Arnold, left Paris on the same day as Elizabeth and her mother. She records the scene that day. It was impossible to imagine what we were seeing now. An endless river of people on foot, in carts, wagons, and cars, animals and bicycles so tightly packed across the road and sidewalks that no one could move more than a step or two at a time. Meanwhile, another stream flowed in the opposite direction, rural troops trying to arrive in time to defend the capital. I still see the gray and weary faces of the people. Here and there, someone sat down suddenly, unable to go on. People offered water or help. Some simply refused to try another step. I wondered how far they had come. Only slightly further ahead of the women and children on the road, the French government ministers struggled to stay connected to the news and to one another. Like everyone else, they were relying on the BBC for the news. The president himself was entirely isolated, without news from the premier, without news from Supreme Headquarters, depressed, overwhelmed, he knows nothing. As with every other part of French preparations for war, the government's evacuation plan was poorly conceived. The ministers hadn't expected the roads to be filled with fleeing civilians, and so, before long, they too had been carried away in the human flood. Often unable to reach their rendezvous or camping out at houses which lacked radio transmitters, even high-ranking government officials had to step outside and ask the refugees on the road for updates. With the unreliable news networks, there was no better way to gauge the German army's progress than to ask the refugees passing by which hometown they were fleeing. On their first day, Elizabeth and her mother walked 42 kilometers, or 25 miles, to Rambouillet. Exhausted from walking, they'd found room for Elizabeth's mother in a stranger's car, allowing Elizabeth to travel on her trusty bicycle. With traffic at a standstill, Elizabeth quickly outpaced the car and kept having to return back to check on her mother's progress. At the last moment, I remembered that I had no idea where the car was going, and she was able to get just close enough to the car to hear the driver shout out the destination. As paradoxical as it may seem, I had come much farther with my bicycle than mother had in the car. With no predetermined meeting point, Elizabeth parked her bicycle and waited for hours, hoping against hope to catch a glimpse of her mother. When she finally spotted her mother at 9 p.m., she ran towards her at full speed. Reunited, the Kaufmans faced their next challenge together, finding a place to sleep. We asked for a room at a hotel, but were turned away by the owner as if we had asked for the head of his firstborn. Finally, they found room on a stranger's couch, that night, Elizabeth and her mother worked out a plan. They would travel separately, Elizabeth on her bicycle and her mother on whatever vehicle had room. They made a list of towns to stop in along the way and agreed to meet in front of City Hall whenever they reached each checkpoint. It all sounded good on paper, the best that two women could do under such stressful, anxious conditions. But within 24 hours, disaster struck. June 13, 1940, at night. This is an unusual place for writing my diary, at the police station. It is 11.30 at night, and we are sitting on a bench at a long table. The light is poor. Across from us sits a man in his mid-thirties, well-dressed, who wants to extract my secrets. 
How had this happened? That morning, Elizabeth and her mother put their plan in action, deciding to meet in front of City Hall in Chartres. Physically and mentally exhausted and alone, Elizabeth had a breakdown while waiting for her mother to arrive. When I stood my bike against the wall, I suddenly collapsed and found myself seated on the floor. My knees were trembling, my hands and eyes hurt, and I could feel myself starting to cry. The others who were waiting hardly noticed me. Most of them were crying. Eventually, Elizabeth's mother arrived and they reunited as planned, only to hear the peal of air raid sirens. Everybody into the shelter, cried a voice, and they crawled into the closest cellar. After the air raid siren quieted, the two women emerged from the cellar. By now, the women's nerves were strained to the breaking point, and it was at that moment that Elizabeth and her mother were grabbed by a pair of policemen and dragged to jail. Elizabeth and her mother, of course, were Austrian. They were enemy aliens, and the town police suspected them of spying. Ordered to empty their purses, Elizabeth showered everything in her bag onto the table. Here was her diary, a book of German poems, mementos from her boyfriend Ernst, who was now fighting in the Allied army. The policemen interrogated the Kaufmans all night and threw them into a cell. As if it is not bad enough to be chased on foot like that, poor and without a destination and without a home, and then to be accused of being a spy for no reason at all, as if someone with Austrian documents, with no proper authority and with no passport would be a spy. What a dumb idea to make two Austrian refugees into spies, two women. Little did Elizabeth know the idea was not so far-fetched. Suddenly, at 4.30 in the morning, the police threw open the door to Elizabeth's cell, tossed her luggage at her feet, and told her to grab her mother and run. The Germans are coming. Elizabeth and her mother fled into the streets of Chartres. It was pandemonium. Elizabeth hopped on her bike and pedaled away as fast as she could. It was the first time that I did not see mother secure in a car. In only a few days, Elizabeth's life her home, her plans, her family, her stability, had fallen away entirely. On June 9th, Elizabeth was confident that Paris was safe from the Germans and determined to ride out the war in the capital with her mother. Less than a week later, she was a 16-year-old girl, fresh from a prison cell, riding her bicycle through unfamiliar land a hundred kilometers from home, cut off from her entire family with no plans except the immediate future. A few weeks ago, Elizabeth had been riding her bike through a beautiful afternoon in the Latin Quarter, and now she was floating alone in a stampede of human desperation. Unable to ride for even one more minute, Elizabeth climbed off her bicycle somewhere near Chateaudan, 130 kilometers from home. A dirty bowl was placed in front of my nose, and a woman poured a black brew with one hand while collecting two francs with the other. I had a headache, was afraid about mother, the hard, narrow bench from last night still hurt. I drank with one gulp, first because I was hungry, second because other people were standing in back of me, and finally because I had left my bike hardly secured for a long time. I arrived in Chateaudan at about three o'clock. I had to go to City Hall, where I am still sitting and waiting for Mother. As Elizabeth passed the long night waiting for her mother, 
Another Parisian was watching the clock back within the city limits of Paris. The chief of police sat at his window, staring out at a scene which had seemed impossible only a few weeks ago. At 3.40 in the morning, he noted, a German motorcyclist is crossing the Place Voltaire. At 7.55 a.m., he watched as several German soldiers arrive at the Hotel Crillon. Finally, at 9.45 a.m., Chief Rogeron recorded something out of a nightmare. The Germans raised the Nazi flag at the Arc de Triomphe. On June 16, 1940, the Prime Minister resigned. The next morning, a young brigadier general named Charles de Gaulle hopped a plane to London, determined to carry on the fight. And on the afternoon of June 17, 1940, only a few days after Parisians began to believe the Germans might really make it into the capital, the new prime minister, Philippe Pétain, the nation's most beloved hero of World War I, made a speech on the radio. It is with a heavy heart that I tell you today that we must cease hostilities. The fighting must stop. In just over one month, the Germans had broken Belgium, the Maginot Line, the capital, and the French nation. For those on the road, there was only shock and disbelief. Over the course of the next few weeks, France's political and military leadership would give up the ghost. Without any particularly structured form of resistance, most Parisians had no option but to return home. By the end of the year, the capital was about as big as it had been at the start of the year. Yet some families stayed away, in particular Jewish families, immigrant families, and especially Jewish immigrant families like Elizabeth's. Her story would take a different turn in the years ahead. But on the night of June 14th, Elizabeth had no idea the path her life would take, one month to the day after she wrote these words. It is difficult to say what I love most about Paris. Only one thing is clear, and that is that I love it. Whether it is the broad, generous, and modern grounds of the Trocadero, the long, symmetrical avenues, the magnificent gardens, or the colorful Latin Quarter, I don't know which. It could be all of that together, the multitude that affects me. Daily life continues, although diminished in every sense. However, the charm of Paris has not disappeared as much as it may have been reduced, and I have not become insensitive, although my feelings have been relatively dulled. Paris still gives me pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. As this series continues, I'll be sharing a lot more information in the newsletters, including more information about the women featured, neat stories that I wasn't able to fit into the episodes, and most importantly, a huge reading list for those who want to learn more. When it comes to women's histories of World War II, so much is owed to the scholars and journalists who are even now looking for survivors to interview before it's too late. 
Recently, I was especially impressed with Anne Semba, the journalist whose book, Le Parisiens, contains so much original investigative work that she conducted in just the past few years. Next month, I'll share this content and more in my free quarterly newsletter, so don't forget to sign up if you haven't done so already. If you don't want to wait that long, however, paid subscribers should keep an eye out, as the paid monthly newsletter will be hitting your inboxes soon. I can't wait to continue this series. And so, until next time, au revoir!